somebody's just being sinfully idle, then yeah, you warn them, you admonish them. It's more firm. But then he says, comfort the discouraged. I think that's the Bruce Reed there, right? We're to comfort them. He says, help the weak and be patient with everyone. So I think when we know we've got somebody who's technically a, a bruised reed, we've got to treat them as if they're weak, as if they're faint-hearted, so they need encouraging, they need strengthening. Um, they don't need their head bit off. Um, and so, yeah, we need to minister Christ to them in an incarnational way, as, as Pastor Josiah said. Um, I want to ask a follow-up on that. Okay, I'm going to make this not necessarily more complicated, but let's put it in our current context. You hear a lot about deconstructing, right? <laughs> People saying, I'm deconstructing my faith. And if you're not aware of what that means, if you haven't heard about that, deconstructing is, is people who've been hurt by the church, let's say. Um, so they become disillusioned. Maybe they've been taught a certain way their whole life, right? Um, and then they find out that, hey, this might not be biblical. And then they realize maybe their leaders are abusive. So then they kind of step back from the church for a while. And they're deconstructing what they're saying is they're breaking down what they've been taught to try to like really discarding it to try to figure out what's traditions of man as opposed to what's in the Bible. And then they claim that their goal is to end up with a biblical faith that shed all the, the traditions and stuff that really put them in, in the situation to begin with. Problem is a lot of these people don't come back to church at all. Right? They start to think uh, church itself, they start to think what the Bible actually says needs to be deconstructed. Okay. Not everybody that does that, but, but some people do. So pastorally, how do we deal with that? Because I've seen people, let's say on social media, just go after the deconstructors, um, really with a flamethrower. And I think some of them probably do need that approach, but there's some people who are just genuinely questioning what they've been taught, and they're not ready to discard the whole Bible and then somebody just comes and bites their head off. So how does the bruise read relate to that in your guys' opinion? I think it's the same uh, approach that you mentioned a while ago. If you look at, uh, for example, Jesus' approach to the woman in the well, she's broken and she comes to him and, and she's not proud and Jesus knows how to reach her where she is. He doesn't just cast her down. And then you see the others who are the Pharisees and Jesus hits them with the law. If you can't do this, I mean, you got to be more righteous. You guys can't make it. I think in the same way, the same principle applies where if they're genuinely looking for answers, then, then we should address that in a way that answers the question. But many times when we do answer questions, we're ready for the next projectile missile to go out. So we're ready to hit them with the next question. And so we have to analyze and seek to understand where they're coming from to see if they're really asking questions to find out or if they're asking questions in a nuisance kind of a way. What I mean by that is sometimes uh, people will ask questions and they say, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to understand, but they're really pushing an agenda and they're pushing an agenda under the guise of trying to understand. So it's a hidden motive behind it. So I think it would be the same approach. And if, if they're really uh, pushing a particular position, it kind of take them to the logical conclusion of their view that says, okay, if you say this and you must say this and this is an accord, so then you kind of take away the ground from them. But again, that has to be done gently, gently as well. Yeah, when you're talking about it being on social media, from what I've experienced, there's a difference between the bruise reed and the weed. Mm. And a lot of folks that I come across, they are weeds. They are weeds trying, to, trying in a sense, to, to work their way up and break apart what is ultimately true and right just because they do have an agenda, because they don't like certain things, and that is a result of the culture breaking into their ideology. And that's what happens I mean, time and time again. And I, I had a discussion, you know, kind of a, 
a blog kind of discussion with a, with a lady that, uh, I mean, she really holds every view that's contrary to the Christian tradition, but yet she identifies as a Christian. And it's just really, really sad. It's really sad. And so there are those that are reads that definitely need that. And there's folks like this individual that ultimately is, is a heretic, is a heretic. And those are the kind of people who are saying that you stand on the foundation of truth because one of the issues that we have today quite a bit is that there's no common ground that people argue from on opposing sides anymore. There's a, I'm going to use the phrase, a, a metaphysical reality of what is actually true, what is real, right? What we can actually argue from. And that has been kind of torn away, in a sense, from any kind of healthy discussion to get to the, to the, to the, the solution of the issue. And it becomes the same point where, okay, well, I just know this is true by what I think, by my experience, and that kind of thing. And that's very challenging to, to argue with somebody. That same heretic just a couple days ago said, I'm cosplaying as a Jew. Uh, that, that the liberal Jews get to determine who a Jew is. Yes. And so even though I, you know, am sort of Torah observant, more than most, let's put it that way, uh, and even though I have the lineage, I don't get to say I'm a Jew because other Jews say I'm not because I believe in Jesus. But then she says she's a Christian. Mm-hmm. She doesn't believe in Christ. She doesn't even believe in God. She's an atheist. But apparently Christians don't have the right to tell her she's not a Christian. So, and she's they, a preacher. And, oh gosh, <laughs> God help the whole world. Uh, yeah, and when you debate her, she's not all there. Uh, so yeah, just, you're right, that is a weed, that's a wolf, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, they're, they're all over the place. And so we definitely have to keep our eyes out for them. And, and I think... Uh, what you both said spot on that, you know, you have some people asking the question in a high-handed way. It's rebellious, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have some people who they're, they're not really trying to figure out what's biblical. They're trying to jettison it. And then you have some people who maybe they start off with a noble quest, but then they're so angry at maybe the abuse of biblical truths that they reject those truths altogether. And, and you know, it's one thing, I guess one thing that we, we have to remind people is just because people misuse the Bible, it doesn't mean what the Bible says is wrong. It just means those people who misused it. You don't listen to them, but you still listen to what the Scripture says. You still follow the Scripture at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. it's a big thing to keep in mind. Anything that you'll say? All right. So I think we got some questions from my kids. <laughs> this is going to be what undoes me. Okay. So Dessa wants to know if heaven will have absolutely everything. What does she mean by everything? Like gummy bears? She said everything, everything. Mm. Anybody want to? I want to see you unravel. All right, all right. Okay, so obviously there won't be sin in heaven, and that's a thing. So there's not going to be everything. And by the way, we're not going to necessarily... Are you talking about heaven like when we die and our ghosts are there? Or are you talking about eternal life and the perfect age to come? Because we'll be on a new earth. You did should know she, that. Did she go to the fundamentals life. class? <laughs> she needs to. <laughs> she says the first one. Oh, okay. So, what, well, I mean, I have no idea what's there other than God and Jesus and myriads of angels when we're departed spirits waiting for resurrection. Uh, and so does she want to follow up on the eternal state Uh, she just said oh she said of course okay thank you so 
One thing we notice is before the fall and after the fall, although there's discontinuity, there's continuity talking above a nine-year-old's mind. But some of the things that were there before the fall obviously carried over after the fall. And there's going to be some things <clears throat> that are in this present evil age that will carry over into the perfect age to come. And so a really good book on this is Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. Um, and he starts asking all the speculative questions. Will there be coffee in heaven? He says, of course. Will there be pets and sports and all that mm -hmm. stuff? And he makes a strong argument that we could expect all that stuff will be in the eternal state, yet in perfection. So every good thing will be there. Every, every cup of coffee will be perfect. It, it will be perfect. We won't need creamer. That's right. You know, but, um, drink it like you should drink it, right? <laughs> but yeah, every, every good thing will be there. No bad thing will be there. Anybody want to add to that? All right, no hogging the mic. She said thank you. Oh, you are welcome. <laughs> All right, Edison. Hey, guys. Um, so this is going to be a three-parter. <laughs> it's kind of hot. Uh, so I'm just going to ask him, and then I'm going to go sit down, and you guys can uh, answer as thoroughly as you can or want to. So who, who were the wise men or the magi that are talked about during the birth of Jesus? Uh, the Bible seems to indicate that they were pagan magicians or astrologers or both. Um, why did they give three gifts and what were their significance? And overall, why was it important that these uh, wise men um, were so important that they should be included in the birth account? And Pastor Steve, you have the, just in case you need to go back for reference. Yeah, yeah, he texted me. <clears throat> and the funny thing is I texted him back and said, if you only would have asked me this in two weeks. Because I haven't, like I have to study that passage to preach it, but I'm, I'm one passage before that. And so truth be told, I have not dived into this. Because mm -hmm. um, I've got a stack of nine commentaries on my desk that I'm reading um, for each sermon and I haven't got to that yet. Uh, if I were to... Take a shot from the hip on this, right? Um, one thing I could tell you is Matthew is very fond of triads, threes. So that's the reason three gifts would be mentioned. He does a lot of threes throughout Matthew. He pairs things in threes. Some people have speculated maybe that's what they would need to live in Egypt. You know, it'll cover their expenses. At the same time, Joseph could build stuff, so he could have covered his expenses that way. So, you know, I don't think we could say 100%... Um, what it was all about, although I have a feeling there's probably some prophecies that mention those things that are um, associated with the days of Messiah. Again, um, I have some studying I have to do on that. Um, you know, as far as are they pagan astrologers, um, you know, Chuck Missler, which everybody loves his wild antics, but some of it's pretty interesting. He thinks they were like a, a secret little group prepped by Daniel that then every generation kept prepping from there. That would be cool if that's the case. Again, I have to study it more. The word in its normal sense does refer to pagan astrologers, though. So if so, why would pagan astrologers be looking for Christ? That's another good question, right? One thing I could tell you is Matthew kind of starts off the book, right, by, by mentioning the four Gentile women and mentioning the Gentile magi, right? And he ends the book of Matthew, so it's kind of in the bookends. He ends it with the Great Commission going out to the nations. So I think, if anything, it's, it's a like foreshadowing, a proleptic look forward at the fact that salvation isn't just going to go to Israel, but it's going to go to the nations as well. And that's about as 
in depth as I could go without having studied it like I, would, I want to. And if I end up contradicting myself two weeks from now, I'll just know I'm disclaiming that tonight. <laughs> I think there's a few things we can say pretty succinctly, though, is that there's, it's not very clear if there was three precisely. Um, it says that there were some wise men. Oh, yeah, three was just a gift. Oh, okay, so the three. Okay, okay, cool. Um, and it seemed like they were acquainted with the scriptures. Because then when they say they saw the, the, the Lord's star, this is what they said in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 2. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So whoever these men are, they were acquainted with the scriptures. Now, did they say that or did uh, Herod's experts say that? Oh, you're right. That's Herod's experts. Otherwise, yeah. that would that would solve it right yeah, there. Yeah. It's like, all right, Missler's right. So, so yeah, <laughs> scratch that. But the the three gifts the 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 gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Um, there are different ways of understanding it, but the idea here were their kingly presence. The frankincense was an act of of worship because the frankincense was fragrant in its in its uh, nature. The gold represented a kingly price, or it was a kingly material given to a king. And uh, the myrrh was representative of this future suffering that he would have to take place. Because the myrrh was a natural and anesthetic, local anesthetic. Um, so there's different, there's different ideas of what those gifts were, at least. If yeah, and, th- and that would be another foreshadowing, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, yeah, that's probably exactly what it is for, okay. for the three gifts. Cool. Anybody else? I've heard the same thing about that Daniel was the one who trained them, mm-hmm. and that's why they would do that. Um, and, and like Josiah was saying, that the myrrh was also for embalming, so a symbol of death. And so it's interesting what you said a while ago, too, because Matthew's genealogy does record women that are not Jewish by nature, but they are Gentiles. And one of my professors in a class that was specifically focused on Jesus mentioned, he did his PhD on the genealogies of Jesus. I mean, that, that was pretty heavy. And so he basically goes through the line, and essentially one of the articles that he wrote was that Jesus came to the, Gentile, uh, to the Jews. And if you see this in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, before that he says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to them who did receive him, he gave the right. So those who did not receive him are twofold. One is the Jewish people that didn't receive him, but at the same time his human creation as well. There's that spiritual element and there's that literal one. So the Jews rejected Jesus, so therefore that's that notion of opening it to the Gentiles. But it's interesting that in Matthew they record the women who are pagan descent as well as with these guys. If, if the question says why were pagan people allowed or important to be mentioned, that's kind of an affront to the Jewish people too. Look, hey, look, you guys were the ones who were supposed to usher the good news. You were supposed to bless the nations. You were supposed to be that, uh, that, that grape shoot that, went, that wasn't supposed to be wild. You went wild, so you kind of gave your spot away. So now here it comes. I'm going to bring my son. And then this points to the fact that, look, even people that are not Jewish come into the family. And if you even look at Jesus' words elsewhere, when that, I think a Syrophoenician woman is there at the table and she says, please heal my child. He says, no, I came to the Jewish people first. And she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And that kind of again opens it up to the Gentile people too. So, yeah. yeah. And that's an interesting account in and of itself because he actually starts off and says, it's not right to give what's for the children to the dogs. The dogs. And then she answers faithfully, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's perfect. There was something you said about the... Um, oh, yeah, so the, the Magi, right, the pagans, if they were pagans, or, you know, maybe they were Daniel's dudes... Uh, but, I said uh, Daniel's dudes. <laughs> it's a bike club. But, 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 yeah, yeah. but let's say let's say they were. The, the, the point was: look at these Gentiles coming from afar to pay homage to the king. That almost serves as a foil against the experts on the law who knew exactly what prophecy to go to, and were absolutely uninterested. Mm-hmm. You know, they they knew exactly where to go. They quoted off memory. And then they don't do anything, and yet here you have these people from afar coming and giving them the gifts of a king. Mm-hmm. Good question. Again, I probably would have had a boatload to say if it was two weeks from now, but, <laughs> but good question. Uh, yes, Min. So lately I've heard a lot about setting boundaries with people. Um, from different people that I've just kind of wondered the biblical understanding of actually setting boundaries and how... Most of the time, it can be an unbiblical approach. So I was just wondering if you guys could speak to that. Mm-hmm. Bad company corrupts. That's a boundary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I saw a post on Twitter and had to do with kind of boundary setting to where the question was, you know, would you go and partake in this act with somebody um, that you wouldn't normally do as a, as a way of, in a sense, being able to evangelize or be in their life or that kind of thing. And, and I mean, the reality is that, you know, when we look at the body of believers, I mean, obviously, you know, Paul had even had to correct some understanding about what it means to be in the world and other world, right? He kind of corrected that because obviously if, if we you know, were supposed to be here, then we have to be taken out of this world to not, be, not to be among sinners. But, I mean, the point is that we are obedient to the Lord and what he's called us to. And the reality is that if we do, in a sense, cross those lines, that causes us to stumble, especially if you know that you are prone to that, er- to that area of struggle, whatever it's drinking, whatever it's, you know, you, you name it, whatever it could be, you definitely have to stay away from those things. And, and even, you know, it may be hard to tell the individual that, look, I, I can't do those things. I can't do those things. And um, we can meet under different circumstances, but I, I definitely have to draw that boundary there. Uh, is that is that helpful or not really? So many are, are you thinking She's more boundaries like like like, <laughs> like people who want a certain claim over certain aspects of your life, like to you know where you're like, hey man, I need my space kind of thing. Yeah, I just heard a lot from people saying I just need to set boundaries with this person. Oh, oh yeah. Got it. Now now are they saying this about another believer in their same church? Ooh. Mm. That changes everything. It changes everything. Yeah. Now this is spice. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Josiah wants to. All right. He's chopping well, it, it, uh, it seems. Uh, this is a very. I mean, I think as pastors, we see this constantly amongst our people. If you spend enough time with people, they're going to get on your nerves. <laughs> and there's, there's a reason why Paul talks about over and over and over again about forgiving one another and loving each other and being united with one another. Because when you spend enough time with family, there's going to be transgressions of lines and some people are habitual line crossers and they they enjoy doing that because they enjoy the reaction now there's nothing wrong with setting a boundary it's very clear that christ himself sets boundaries he removes himself from crowds of people he says 
that he has to continue forward or he can't do miracles in a certain place or he'll go up to the mountain by himself or he'll let his disciples off by themselves. Um, so it, there's, it's clear. But at the same time, he's always willing to allow himself to be transgressed in a sense. Um, so it, there's nothing necessarily wrong with saying to someone that you love, listen, I love you, but we need to have certain limitations to our relationship or else it's going to cause further division. I want to have unity with you. I want to have love with you. I want to be able to fellowship with you without anything hindering. Knowing that you, we should be open to the reality that those lines will be transgressed nonetheless. So it's one thing to say, I just, I'm going to shut this person out of my life. It's another thing to set boundaries and say, listen, love you with all my heart, but this relationship that we're in right now, it's not doing well for us. I'd rather be able to come to church and see you and love you and, and fellowship with you than see you and, and not, say hi, not even want to say hi to you because I feel that tension. So... We need to be very careful, and it happens in the, in the body of Christ. And to, to think that it just doesn't happen among Christians, it's just it's not a wise way to, to see um, the unity of Christ in us. We need to be wise about how we approach one another. Yeah, I think that's a very wise approach. You know, kind of starting from, you know, the bird's eye view, Jesus had his inner circle, you know, Peter, James, and John. And then he had the 12, and then... 100, the 120, and then the 500. Um, so there was some concentric circles. And obviously the, the three in the inner circle were privy to see things that the others didn't. So even there, Jesus set boundaries in, in terms of who's able to enter certain spaces of his life, right? Um, and, and I think we all have to do that. Otherwise, we'll, you know, we would be horrible family members, right? Obviously, the, our family's got to be our, our like closest inner circle, they have to have the prior, priority. Not everybody can just walk into that level of intimacy mm-hmm. and, and, you know, walk into your, your house and so let me see your checkbook. I'm curious how you spend <laughs> your money. And it's like, uh, see the door there, you know, go. Uh, but, you know, so it starts there. And then, of course, you've got the church and then, you know, the world and, and, and stuff like that. And so one thing you have to guard yourself because there's going to be people like Josiah says, who naturally don't care about boundaries, they'll cross them, right? And so, for example, a lot of you guys know I, I try to keep Fridays off for myself. Uh, we had a, a person, they're, they're, they haven't been here in a long time, they're not a member anymore, but every Friday I would get a call, with, not every Friday, but it was a lot of Fridays. I'd get that call because they're in crisis mode, and I'm like, you only have crises on my day off? You know, and then you, so eventually I would stop answering the phone when I saw it. And then the person would call and call and my phone's like, and so either I'm going to throw it out the window or I'm going to answer. And then I start getting mad. I'm like, what? You know, um, and, and that's not good on my part. And I would tell the person, I'm like, come on, this is my day off. There's other people you could call. Um, but the person just didn't get it. Right. And so I told, I told the person at a point, like, I'm just not taking your calls on Fridays. If it's an emergency, you'd call 911 and not me anyway. Right, we could talk on Sunday. It's just two days from now, um, so we sometimes do have to set boundaries and, and rules like that, and that's okay. What's not okay though is to look at someone in the same body because they've done something that's offended you, even more than once. Because Jesus says we're to forgive our brother seventy times, seven times. You can't say this person's annoyed me this many times, therefore they are cut off from me. I'm going to act like like for my own well-being. That's all psychobabble, right? 
I have to have my own mental health. And so for my own mental health and my own safety, I have to have a space where this person's just not welcome into my life. The scripture does not give us that option. So they got to repent of their idolatrous worship of self-comfort and actually do the hard work. Because I'll tell you something, if they find that person repulsive, God finds you ten times, infinity times more repulsive. And yet Jesus crossed the gap to have that fellowship with you. So we have no right to not do the same for others. Yeah, you know, Paul talks about a ministry of reconciliation. That's what we have. And so if you are not investing people in situ- into the point to where no one could ever sin against you, if you, do, you know, do you know what I mean by that? Like, if it's basically there's people that you will never, ever talk to, really, you know what, there's never an opportunity that person will somehow transgress you because they have that kind of relationship that you actually you revealed yourself to them as a, as a, as a good friend. And if that can't happen, it's because you've con- consistently insulated yourself from everybody around you and you create your own boundaries... And that's just definitely not, not in the place that we're supposed to be at, or not. And I kind of think of uh, two things. One is along the lines of what you said in terms of we're supposed to forgive 70 times 7, but that presupposes that they're going to ask for forgiveness. That doesn't mean that you don't forgive. That means that you have a spirit of readiness, that you're ready to forgive when they come, but you're not going to hold it against them. On the practical side, I can say that I've been through something like this with a particular person that I will not mention, not here, uh, but a person that was uh, very close to me. And so in my life, I made a decision that I loved this person, but I couldn't be around them too much because our personalities were very much alike to some degree, and we clashed. For one reason or the other, it was just a clash. And I tend to be a person that asks questions, and I ask questions, and I won't just give in. And so that can be kind of bothersome to somebody who, who doesn't like to be called out on something. Um, And so what I did is, in order to save the relationship, because I don't like to burn bridges, I limited my connection with this person to maybe once a week or every two weeks, but yet maintaining that relationship. And so that's the whole idea of making no provision for the flesh, because I know that when I'm around this person, because of the influence, Christian influence and otherwise, uh, there's a way that they've had so much leverage, if you will, that it affects you to a degree that you're, you're not able to be calm and so... It may be tension in the air. It may be what they say, how they say it. There's always something that's pushing at old wounds. And so you cannot let yourself just be jacked up like that. But at the same time, like you said, you can't withdraw completely either because you have to allow that relationship to continue. But how do you make it thrive by limiting it? So to some degree, you know. Hey, you have to be at peace with everyone, especially within the church. But you don't have to be best friends with everyone, right? And what you and Josiah were hitting at was... A wise way to do that, where you keep the relationship, but at the same time you set further boundaries because of perhaps a toxic influence a person has. Um, But I would also say that if their toxic influence is sin, love covers a multitude of offenses. That's what the scripture says. And so if it's something that doesn't bother us, then we're able to forgive it, but then there shouldn't be a barrier. If there's a barrier, then that means love's not covering the multitude of offenses. And so Matthew 18 starting at verse 15, tells us you have to go to the person. Sometimes I think it's easier not to. And so we'll say love covers the multitude of offenses, um, but then we use that as the excuse to, to keep them away. I don't think that's the right way either. So I kind of take the approach, I don't have to be best friends with everybody. There's going to be people I jive with better, but I'm going to show love and respect to everybody. And if there is somebody who is spitting toxicity in my life, then no, I, I have no choice but to 
Matthew 18 it unless it really doesn't bother me and I could treat them as if they never did that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a complicated question. It is. Right? a good one. Yeah. yeah, it was a really good one. Very practical because I think all of us struggle with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good old Albert. He's telling me he's struggling with me right now. <laughs> <You know. laughs> all right, so Frank. Good evening. Good evening. Very powerful um, German voice. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. In 2 Corinthians uh, 5, Paul was saying that we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Um, when I was reading in the Psalms, I came across Psalm 30, verse 9, where it says, What gain is there in my death uh, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Um, I, I didn't quite know how to reconcile it. Uh, is it? You said Psalm, thir- Psalm 30. Psalm, Psalm 30, verse 9. Ah, yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> so, believers in the Old Testament and New Testament, are they in the pre- when they die, are they in the presence of God? Or, um, why is he saying, you know, uh, who will give him praise when he would be dead? That's a good question. Thank you. I know what I'm thinking, but do you guys want to go first? I don't want to be a ball. Is the question about New Testament believers or Old Testament saints? Now, I was just wondering why the psalmist was saying, hey, uh, you know, uh, it, it almost sounds like it, and I, I not necessarily assume it, but it almost sounds kind of like, you know, if he would die, then he would cease to give thanks to the Lord or praise. Uh, however, if, you know, we take Paul's, you know, uh, 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 view that, you know, he would rather be uh, absent from the body and present with the Lord, you know, he would be in the presence of God. And I, I would assume that the, the thanking and praising would continue there. So I guess the question is, Old Testament believers, uh, were they, when they die, are they right away in the presence of, uh, of God or uh, no, not? That's a good question. So if we look at Paul, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He never stopped being a Pharisee. That was his thing, but he's a Christian. Uh, so the line of thought continues from beginning to end. It's still the same notion. I think what the psalmist is talking about is in terms of his life. You know, if you look at Psalm, I think it's 88. It doesn't end good. It ends bad. Because he's left in the darkness, and a lot of the Psalms are expressing our emotions. And so sometimes they're not making the distinctions that we're seeing Paul make. Paul's very clear here that he's making a distinction that he wants to be with the Lord because it's better, right? Because at his presence, there's blessings forevermore, and to see, see the Lord would be amazing. But he's also torn because he wants to stay to continue the ministry because it's going to be beneficial for the church. In the case of the Psalms, I don't think he's making a statement of the afterlife. I would say that the afterlife... They're, they are in the presence. Obviously, it's, it's the idea of being in Abraham's bosom that Jesus appeals to when he's talking about Luke, the rich man, and Lazarus. But in this case, I think that the psalmist is not appealing to the end life. He's more so speaking about present now. Because if you look at, for example, in, in I think it's uh, Solomon. I don't remember if it's in Ecclesiastes, but he talks about that, that whatever he does, he's going to do to the best of his ability. And while there's ability to work, do it now because when he's dead, he can't work anymore. And I think that's that notion that he's speaking about his existential feeling now, that if I die, I can't praise you because I'm dead, right? And, but he's not making a claim to the spiritual nature because they had an understanding of the resurrection 
or at least being in the presence of God. Uh, so that's what I would say. Yeah, what I would add to this is, you know, progressive revelation, right? You know, Abraham didn't know what we know, right? Neither did Moses. I mean, God increases the amount. And so what you see is, you know, by the time of David, you have this, this general understanding of the afterlife is it's being gathered to my people because that's what Genesis says. David knew that his dead child, he would be able to be reunited with him. Um, in, in his death. So there, there was this, that they understood that Sheol, or, or Hades as it's called in, in the Greek, um, it's kind of the, the, the shadowy, nebulous place. They know that like both the wicked and the righteous would go there in the Old Testament. But they also understood that it's going to be a little different for them. And this all gets fleshed out. And by the time we get to Jesus, he says there's two chasms, um, you know, Abraham's bosom, where the Old Testament saints go. And then you end up with... Um, with, um, you know, the, where the wicked goes, where uh, the rich man does. So what I would say is that prior to Christ's resurrection, um, I don't think the Old Testament saints went straight to the presence of God. I think they went to Sheol. When, when Samuel's ghost is brought back up, he comes up, you know, um, from, from below. And so I, I think you see that stuff, I think, in the historic creeds. There's, there's a point to Christ descending into the place of the dead to set the captives free and, and bring them up. And, and I know not all modern evangelicals accept that, but um, I've come to accept that the creeds were probably right on that one because I was fighting it a few years back. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what First Peter means. But, you know, the, the, the thing is there, there's probably something to that. So, like, when Paul's writing, this is post-resurrection. Yeah, to be in the presence of, to be away from the bodies, to be in the presence of the Lord. David wouldn't have had that expectation the expectation would be, I'm going somewhere all right, but the Old Testament assumes you're always more blessed to be in this earth, to be alive, where you could serve God, where you could offer sacrifices, where you could sing praises, where you could tell the people of Israel and the people of the world of the wonders of God. And he's saying, what good would it be if I die? I can't do that anymore. So I think that's his emphasis there. But I don't think he's pushing any form of like atheism or materialism that, hey, when I'm dead, I'm dead, that's it. Because there's other passages where he yeah. anticipates there's something there. I didn't think that, that yeah. he did. I was just wondering. But yeah, I think the re what reconciles Paul with David there is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the glue that makes both true um, just at different times. Okay. Thanks a lot. Does one add anything to that? I need to think more on that. Uh, we have an online question from, uh, from Nick for his son, Jack. He wants to know why there was no dinosaurs on the ark, specifically the T-Rex. Okay. Well, I'm going to give Jack a pass because he's so well-dressed. Um, but uh, there were dinosaurs on the ark. I mean, there's no reason to think they weren't. Um, you know, and so I, I covered that in one of the Genesis sermons, and even the T-Rexes. Uh, man, I wish I could remember the exact details, but the, the Creation Ministry International folks, you know, the the PhD scientists there, they pointed out that if you took a dinosaur on when they're pre-adolescent, they would all fit just fine. They don't have to be babies. They could be like teenagers. They'd be fine. And then like five years after they get off the ark, then you got to worry about them. Um, so there was T-Rexes on the ark and Noah could have got them in a headlock and noogied them and they wouldn't have been able to fight back at that point. But then one day, tables would turn. And hence dragons got hunted. But that's, that's where I would, uh, you know, leave that. I mean, it's, it's possible that they could have been hunted to extinction before, too. 
true. I mean, but we just it, it's it's a great question. I love the the mind of a child. <laughs> He's more worried about dinosaurs <laughs> than anything else. I think we all you know, that age. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's awesome. I love it. I love that question. It's great. Yeah. Right, Thomas. Cool. So I was um, watching a clip of a debate in uh, Arizona, and um, one of his opponents, who's obviously pro-choice, made an argument to, uh, I guess, the person that he's uh, running against. And he said that, uh, and I pretty much have to paraphrase it, what would you say to the parents of a 10-year-old child that was uh, ravaged by an illegal immigrant? And uh, I guess for me, it was like, man, like, for, first, number one, it's just like, as being a believer, how can I minister to that family? Because first thing in their mind is going to be like, yeah, my child, but now they're having this baby by the person that violated her. So uh, my question to you is, how would you come alongside them and what would be the steps? Because uh, not only is this child dealing with the physical aspects and not and just knowing that she's only 10 years old, her body has not been fully developed on how her body's gonna be able to react to this, but psychologically, obviously, uh, there's a lot of things that's probably going on in this child's head as well as the, the family. So that's my question. So, so the, the 10 year old actually conceived? In Arizona I believe so. So I think there was a, a 11 year old, 10 or 11 year old 10 year old. A girl who was um, raped by an undocumented man right? Yes sir. And she became pregnant and the, the solution from the parents was to go get the, get abortion, the abortion in abortion. another state, correct? Yes. Okay. So, and then, so your question is how should we respond if that situation were to rise up? Yeah, if, okay. if that situation was on your on your doorstep, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. say if these yeah. if the parents actually mm-hmm. came to you and like, hey, we really are strongly considering this, yeah. and we just don't know how to deal with this whole situation, yeah. let alone that this is a ten year old little girl. So, and and the thing that I like about this question is, I mean, we live in a time where. Sometimes the ethical dilemmas aren't so clear-cut and dry, right? I think this one is. And, um, and what's fascinating, and I'll let somebody else take this one before me, but six, on 60 Minutes on Sunday, um, our president of the SBC, uh, Bart Barber, um, was on 60 Minutes being interviewed by Anderson Cooper, and Anderson Cooper asked him this same question, and I thought... Uh, Bart Barber hit it out of the park. So I'm going to steal his answer after everybody else is done. I want to hear his answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me make a fool of myself and then we'll hear that one. Um, I would probably initially weep at the very hearing of that story. You watched 60 Minutes. uh, (laughs) Is that how you... Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) No, just thinking about it, I have an 11-year-old daughter. I would weep. I would weep at the tragedy... I would weep for her. I would weep with the family. I would enter into such deep prayer and fasting for that family and for that that child who's now going to, who would be a mother in about nine months after that. I I would fall before God Almighty on my face on behalf of that family. 
But then I would start to minister to them and make it very clear that the life of a child, no matter how it enters in, is a blessing from God. It's still alive. It's still alive. And the tragedy of that event does not justify another tragedy. Because then, if by that morality, any tragedy can justify a second tragedy and a third tragedy and so on and so forth. But other than that, man, I, I, would, I would seriously weep and just, and just minister to the family in the deepest pit of sorrow that I can experience and feel for that family. That's what I would say. Yeah, and if the threshold is, well, because what they try to do is they try to focus on the suffering of the person who's pregnant. And they completely leave out the fact that there's a life, a child made in the image of God, in the womb. And so um, one thing to always ask yourself is, it's okay to murder someone when? And then you try to fill in the blank, right? And again, I picked the word murder because, you know, kill, if somebody's breaking into your house and they're trying to kill you and you take them out with self-defense, that's not murder. That's just defense. But to, to deliberately end the life of, of someone who is no physical existential threat to you, right? And I understand the left wants to define, redefine existential threat. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep that in mind, but um, it would be murder, right? And so it, you could follow this logic. Okay, let's say I have to take care of my parents and they've lost the ability to function and it's costing way too much and it's ruining my psychological well-being. To, to use the terms of the, the world, and it's wrecking my marriage and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, now harm's happening to me. Is it okay for me to terminate my parents in one of the states like Washington that allows euthanasia, right? And so the, the, the point is it's the exact same ethical scenario. It's just now you're dealing with someone out of the womb versus somebody in the womb. You're still dealing with, with people who are suffering. And so just understand that when the question is asked this way, it is always asked in a way that omits the life that's in the womb. So the first thing you have to do before you even answer is introduce that into the equation. Okay, this isn't just suffering, which is bad as it is for the 10 or 11-year-old. There's also now a life involved, right? So we, we have to, to weigh this out. And, and I think the, the weeping part, I mean, it, you've got to minister to the people, that's for sure. Anybody else before I... Yeah. Add parts. And just last part. Along the lines of what you said, one wrong never justifies another wrong. It never does. So, I mean, that's just a tad bit. Yeah, and so Cooper was incredulous. Like, even at the, he, he was like, because Bart pretty much said the same thing that I would weep with them, I'd pray for them, I, I would get as many people in the church to minister to them consistently. He's like, but we are convinced. That is a life that's in that womb. And so we can't kill that life, right? And, and so then he came back, but this is a 10-year-old who's, you know, and you're going to have a 10-year-old go full term. He's like, it's not ideal. We want to create a world where 10-year-olds don't ever get pregnant. But we're in a world where, unfortunately, that's happened. And the fact is that is a life, right? So we want to take care of the 10-year-old or 11-year-old, but we also want to preserve that life. And it's hard, it's not easy, but we will do the best we can to take care of the girl and take care of the baby. And I thought that was the right answer. And Cooper didn't like it, but he couldn't really push back anymore after that. And I thought it was, uh, 
just a faithful answer because a lot of times when our religious leaders get put on the spot by a major media figure, they almost always like start hot dancing, you know, as if their feet are getting shot at. And he was just, he was gentle, but he was to the point and answered it exactly as it should have been. Thank you. Small town Texas pastor. He owns 10 cows too. I'm telling you, <laughs> he's the man. All right, Rachel. So Dessa has another question. She wants to know how God can control everything and everyone all at once. Good question. <laughs> was that for the infinity God? He just snaps oh. the so. Hmm, that's a good question. So, we want to define control. So, control, do you mean like does God, in a sense, supernaturally intervene in everybody's bodies and move them how he wants them to? Yes? Yes. Well, he doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't do yeah. that, right? Um, For example, when you're sneaking to watch cartoons when you're not supposed to, God's not controlling you to make you do that. He's not doing that. that. He's not doing that. So, <clears throat> so yeah, it's a, very, it's a very good question. It's a very, uh, I guess you'd say, technical question. There's a lot to it. But how we would understand that is that we know that the Scriptures speak of God decreeing uh, his will. Whatever he, whatever he wants to happen is going to happen. But it's in such a way that when God has determined for something to happen, that those events transpire through the free choices of human beings. The person wants to do that. No one's ever forced to do something they don't want to do it. Now, ultimately, as in the situation with Jesus, right, he was delivered up by God, but it was through the hands of the evil men that wanted to do that. So their actions of doing what God wanted was evil, but God's actions of doing the same thing were for good. And so that's where we kind of want, in a sense, really just kind of stay there. You're trying to, trying to go too far. You're really getting all kinds of really kind of thorny things. But so in a sense, again, we still have, we do make choices, right? We do, do make choices. But God has determined that these things will come about by his will, and it's always good. And I think it's in Genesis 50, verse 20, is really the lens to look at of, of one single act. That from one side of the coin, it was evil. From the other side of the coin, it was for good. Mm-hmm. And Dessa, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, think of a book. If you're the author of a book, you're writing what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And you're the one with the master plan in the book. So you're writing what's going to happen. And then you're making the characters. You've got the good guys or the protagonists and the bad guys, the antagonists. Mm-hmm. So you're giving each one a life. Everyone has their own thing. So as you're reading the book, you're getting into the book, and you're seeing how the bad guy is doing something bad, and the good guy is doing something good, and something's happening. Well, God is that that grand author, and he's written the book, right? So that's why everything is going along the way it's going. But then these characters are doing their part too, so they're acting in there, and they're working it out. And then if you think about how everything else happens, this is a little bit different from free will and stuff, but think of Jesus as the glue that holds everything together. Nothing can exist because by itself it depends on God, right? God is the creator of everything, and so nothing can exist by itself. Imagine if we didn't have gravity, we just kind of dissolve but if gravity was too strong we collapse but jesus is the glue that holds everything together so we don't float out my heart keeps bump uh, pumping my blood keeps flowing my eyes keep seeing and i keep breathing i'm not controlling my breathing but it's but i'm breathing and if i try to stop breathing i'll start breathing again i'll start breathing again see so it's, it's pretty cool how god controls it by giving us that ability not ability he just does it but then again we're doing it but then he's doing it it's kind of interesting how it works you know and I like the, the book example. There, there's no example that's perfect, but I like that one. Something that not a lot of you know about me is I 
written a book of fiction. It's like 320 pages, uh, single space in Microsoft Word, and there's going to be three more coming when I have time. I got the whole story in my head planned out. And I, you know, but the, the, one, the one interesting thing with it is once I got past the first few chapters, the characters kind of had a life of their own. I felt like I was the one in control, but then the things that were I was writing them do were the things that made sense for them to do is if they were real making these decisions and like their dilemmas and how they would uh, handle uh, circumstances outside of their control and stuff like that. It, it's fascinating. And once I recommend at some point, write a short story or even a long one, make fake characters, but write enough to where you'll realize they end up with a life of their own. It's so weird. Yet you're the author and still your predetermined outcomes, what happens? It's not a perfect example because God's obviously omniscient, but I'm telling you, that was not something I expected. Some of my original plans changed just because of organically what was happening in that story. One of these days, I got to finish the other ones and then publish this, and I'll be the next C.S. Lewis. Anyway, because <laughs> it's fantasy genre. <laughs> and what's what's important with that too is is um, I guess I lost my train of thought. Is that yeah, totally? Oh my goodness! It's Albert's fault. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate Sorry. that. <laughs> um, He's a rebel. Is that the reality? Is that as there's a lot of tension in, in holding that view. But the problem is if you, if you start saying that, that God isn't in control, there's all these Christian truths that we no longer can believe. For example, how do you pray to God? You pray for God to change someone's heart. You don't say, God, I hope by his free will, he decides to choose you one of these days. Like, we don't ever pray that way. In the scriptures, you look at the prayers in the Bible, they pray. Those prayers are one of the, one of the strongest sections of scripture of showing God's sovereignty over human choices. And so like I said, if we, if, we, if we go to the opposite side, we lose so many Christian truths that we depend on and rely on to get by moment by moment. She said thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got some more time. All right, sweet. All right, we got one from, uh, from YouTube again. One of them I'm going to purposely skip because they're asking a Revelation one. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. But uh, Steve did a whole John series on Revelation, so um, go check that out. It'll only take you a long time. Yeah. This was from Alina, who's here, oh. but I think she's a little embarrassed, so I'll ask it. What's your take on deliverance ministry and its soul ties biblical? Did I say it right, or...? So, are you familiar with soul ties? I, so the, the idea here is that when a man and a woman sleep together out of wedlock, is that what you're talking about, soul ties? Uh, yeah. Okay. So when they have sexual relations outside of the, the covenant of marriage, something mysterious happens in the soul of the man and in the soul of the woman that you kind of semi-unites them so that um, there's a certain element of, of like spiritual effect that happens. And it could be it could be um, trauma related. It could be relationally. It can be emotionally. It can be mental. But something still ties you to that person. Is that somewhat of a different? Because I've heard different kinds of soul ties, but that's yeah, one of them. So okay. Okay. Right. I've never even heard of this. Is there a book on it somewhere? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there. Is, I'm sure there is, but I haven't read it. 
I've only heard this in certain um, certain like charismatic apostolic ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and the idea of deliverance, deliverance ministries is like if someone is undergoing some kind of generational sin or maybe is experiencing some kind of spiritual turmoil like addiction or uh, depression, anxiety or all these other things, um, you can pray over someone, fast for them and deliver them from a specific addiction or some kind of spiritual torment or demonic oppression or something like that. Right, okay. That, that I just want to kind of define what those things. Yeah, are. no, that's. Uh, thank you. So I took a class at my sem- previous seminary, and it was led by a, a missionary, a psychologist, and a biblical psychologist, not like ACBC, but from Rosemead. It was at Talbot, and then by a New Testament scholar. He wrote his dissertation on, I think it was the magic in, in Ephesus, and where they did a lot of that kind of stuff. And this makes me think of a few things. When you look at the whole notion of uh, physical consummation uh, relation, there is a physical dimension, a spiritual dimension, an emotional dimension that happens. For example, when you look at it neurologically speaking, there's this release. Think of when a mom is breastfeeding the baby, releasing oxytocin. It's a neurotransmitter. It's called the bonding neurotransmitter. So at the biological level, there is a form of attachment that happens. It's biological, but we're not just physical. We're physical. We're psychosomatic. We're soul-spirit, right? Whether you're dichotomous or trichotomous, soul-spirit body or soul-spirit together, body, doesn't matter. But the fact is, we're not just a piece of meat. We're, we're psychosomatic, but we're emotional beings. So there's an interesting element that the physical does create some form of attachment. That's also an issue we see with people who are in relationships, be they abusive or not, premarital or not, even within your own relationship. But there is that once consummation happens, there is that attachment that happens, if you will, at the psychological level, the emotional level, the physical level, and some would say spiritual level. And, and one of the things that Josiah mentioned is when we were looking at this, uh, there are some prayers, some of them are charismatic in nature, that they elevate the gifts of the Spirit so high that they have their own spiritual deliverance ministry. Um, and we do see exorcisms happening in the Scripture. They tend to be different. But along the lines of this, uh, one of the professors there that was a missionary to Papua New Guinea, uh, he actually prayed like this, and, and even some other guys that were missionaries all over the place would mention that they would pray over generational sins. They would pray over any particular sin. Let's say you're dealing with depression or, or some type of addiction. It didn't mean that it was going to go immediately, but it meant that there possibly, this is what they would say, there was possibly some type of a spiritual connection or demons, not, uh, what's the word? Not, help me with the word, guys. What is that word? Possession. Thank you. Thank you. I saw the head go like this. I'm like, oh, it's possession. No, just kidding. Can I read your mind, man? In the name of Jesus. All the bodies go down. I'm just you just joking. delivered me. Hi. But, but there was no possession, but oppression and tormenting. And we know the scripture says that we get tormented. Look at Job. Job was tormented and he was oppressed. So as Christians, you have a target, not only from the world at the, at the physical level, but our, our war is against the principalities and powers, right? So we see that element here. So there are some that would say that there is some type of a connection. How deep and how strong, we don't know, because that's still in the kind of 
possibility skeptical or the speculative region. But this particular missionary would pray for people that had, let's say he would say, a spirit of oppression, a spirit of suicide, a dark demon following. And so there's a possibility of some things. For example, uh, this guy from Fuller, I don't follow him, but he was one of the books that we read. Uh, his name was Chuck Kraft. Chuck Kraft was big in terms of deliverance ministries. And he had a saying that I thought was pretty good. He says, get rid of the rat and you get rid of the trash. Get rid of the trash, you get rid of the rats. The rats are the demons, the trash are the sins that you engage yourself in. So when you're engaged in more sins, it opens you up and it kind of calls the rats. That's what he would say. So if you're living in, in some type of a sin that's unrepentant or that you haven't repented for or there's something you didn't know that attached down the line, then that's something you needed to be prayed over. And eventually, if you began to walk as God wants you to walk and, and, and with the prayer, it would be broken too. But it meant that the person had to be genuinely uh, repentant, that they would have to uh, not engage in that behavior anymore and pray over that in their lives and continually be involved in the scriptures. But all that said, one of the things that would happen is with these people, the moment they would get close to church, start reading their Bible, some of these things would start rising within as if trying to keep them from coming to church still. How much was that psychological or spiritual? We don't know, but we know that the spirits do affect and that there is some type of a connection there. So those are my two cents. Yeah, I, I think um, for in, in terms of soul ties, I think the ultimate question is, okay, let's say that that's true. Are you saying that even after Christ, your soul is still tied to other individuals for the duration of your life? And, to, and if so, to what degree or how does that affect you? I don't think that that, that is something that you're going to carry for the rest of your life. If you're in Christ, Christ breaks you free from any other tie to any other soul because he's yours and you're his, right? So if, if, let's say for whatever reason, you do engage in these kinds of things premaritally, are we to say that somebody who then gets married brings in all of these other soul ties into their marriage? No, of course not. Christ can break those things free, right? And essentially in the eyes of Christ, if you come to Christ and, and ask for forgiveness in his sight, you're essentially a virgin again, right? Even though maybe physically you may not be. And the idea of deliverance, if somebody comes to me and asks for prayer, I'm going to pray for them, you know? You feel like you're being oppressed. You feel like something heavy and weighty is going on. Like right now I'm ministering to a young man who, is, who has been raised up in a Hispanic culture with Santaria in his home, right? Demonic practices of praying to saints and utilizing different, you know, things in order to cleanse the soul. Like it's very witchcrafty. Very witchcraft, right? And now he's born again, following the Lord, but he's experiencing demonic activity in his home. So if he comes and prays, hey, can, or comes to me and says, hey, can you pray for my family, my, my wife and my home? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, what am I going to say? No, no, of course I'm going to pray for them. I think the danger is with deliverance uh, ministries is that they tie everything to a spirit or they tie everything to some kind of demonic presence. So they'll say things like the spirit of poverty. And it's like, no, there's no spirit of poverty. Well, the spirit of anger is over me. No, it's like, no, you're angry. <laughs> you need to repent. You don't just pray that the spirit of, of anger get away from me or something like that, you know. So I think we have to be very wise and very careful on how we, we talk about specific sins and demonic activity. Yeah, I, I was going to pretty much say that, that, you know, the people running those kind of ministries tend to see a demon behind every bush. Um, and so sin's no longer you. It's this demon of fornication or this demon of pornography. 
And so you have to bind it. And so you go to the guy who's got the, the really giftedness of the Holy Spirit and he can set you free. And I guarantee there's always a money trail that follows these kinds of ministries. Mm-hmm. And so usually when it comes to things like that, it's just sin, right? And the Bible tells us how to deal with it. You put off the old man. You renew your mind with scripture and you put on the new man. And that'll take care of the stuff Carlos was talking about with, you know, the brain and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it will, you know, <laughs> take care of what Josiah is saying where you're not blaming everything on a demon. And, you know, I was kind of thinking like a Sadducee for a second. You know how they, you know, come to Jesus. So a man marries a woman and then he dies and then she marries the brother and the brother. Well, I'm almost thinking the same thing. So are they saying if two people fornicate, you know, but then like they move a thousand miles from each other and both actually marry someone that their souls actually tied to the person they fornicated with rather than the marriage. You know, it's just, it, idea, it, yeah. it, it's very strange is all I'm saying. Right. And, and there's no, there's no biblical chapter or verse that's going to support that idea. So I think people just try to inv- make problems more complex than they really are. And then they invent solutions that don't even solve a problem that's not even a real problem. So, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. But good stuff. Thanks for educating me on this. Interesting. All right, so we've got time for a couple more. Okay. So Dessa basically wants to know, I think, how God's power manifests itself and if he uses magic at all. Mm-hmm. You want to give Aquinas' answer about egressions? Uh, magic? Oh. <laughs> That's funny because I can't recall what he said on that. But, um, I mean, we've kind of already talked about it a little bit. But when we think about, about God's power, and Carlos said about, talking about Jesus upholding all things by his power. He's the glue to everything, in a sense. And so what God does is that, I and mean, we believe that Scripture tells us that our days are numbered. Right? We all have a, a certain time, place, date that we are going to die. How, how does God ensure that, in a sense? Well, he has to be everywhere present. He has to know exactly how your heart is functioning. He actually has to uphold your heart to make sure it's functioning. Let's say, for example, that you were to get medicine, but God has determined that you are going to die by a heart attack. He will make sure that the medicine that works for everybody does not work for you. All right? So when we think about God's power and how he interacts with the world, one, we also don't want to say that God intervenes. Right? God is not some kind of distant deity that he kind of inserts himself. He wants to kind of change things up and move things around. He's only, always fully present to it. But what we would say is that God manifests his power from the standpoint of like how we have life, what we're doing right now. He sustains all things. And so his presence, he says he activates that by his power. And so we can't, in a sense, you can't, obviously you can't put your hand on it. You can't, in a sense, study it. But we do study it, in a sense, by the created order that he has made and how it actually, how he actually governs it. So I don't know if that's a helpful answer or not. But. And if you mean magic as in like the conjuring of spells <laughs> or some kind of like magic wand or something like that, I don't think that's how God operates. <laughs> God's eternal decree has already set things, all things into motion. So when a miracle takes place, God is not like conjuring a spell to make it happen. It's just already part of his divine decree and his providential plan. But we, but we also don't want to see, like, to what some people think, too. It's actually kind of a misunderstanding. That I think about God is the one that set things in motion, right? It's not that he kind of, like, you know, pushes the ball, then it just kind of gains momentum and keeps going. He's actually the one that causes all things to carry out. He, he sustains. He gives power. He gives energy. He gives all that to us to sustain everything to carry out his will. 
And that's a helpful way because a lot of people say, well, is God making me drop this pen right now? Like, is he kind of doing these things? Is he, is he in a sense where he just kind of, again, he, he kind of pulls the lever and everything just kind of happens like dominoes. It doesn't work that way. He is with the dominoes, making sure they land properly, giving the ability to, to land, ultimately to carry out the process of that. That's how intricately involved he is with his creation. And God's not like us, right? We increase power, then we decrease it. So if you're lifting something heavy, you're increasing your, your effort. And then when you're resting, you're just basically doing the minimum to be able to live and breathe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but God is perfect, infinite power all the time. It never increases. It never decreases. It's constant because God is simple. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's not made of parts, right? And so God's power is his power. Mm-hmm. It's never less. It's never more. And so, but we experience it. From our human standpoint and being in creation where it does look like he increases it and decreases it. Like when he split the Red Sea, right? What was that? Like, well, it's not like God had to, you know, work up a storm there. It's just what, the, the way it works is his power is always there. It's always infinite. So like the medieval theologians would say it's egressions where, where God will then take that power that's always there and break through. It will hit a certain point and it will be seen. It will be felt. And then when he's done with that, it's not like he's removing his power. He's just removing the egression. And again, I don't know another, like a simpler word to explain it. But it made a lot of sense to me because from our perspective, it looks like God rests and then acts. Rests and then acts, but he doesn't, right? He's pure act. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so his power is always pure. It's always there. It's always infinite. Mm -hmm. We just perceive it when... Again, he manifests it into our experience, into our world, and into our life. Yeah, like the rays of sunlight, the rays of sunlight, they shine on this earth. And depending on the, the kind of material it is, it responds differently to it, right? So there's always the light shining, right? But dead flesh is going to burn and rot. Human tissue, like us, is alive. It's not going to burn and rot. It's going it's to burn. It's going to feel a different type of effect from that. So in a sense, like he says, that God's power is always going out. But depends on the creature, on the on the composition of the creature, whatever that that physical that physical uh, element is. It's going to respond differently based upon what it actually is. Maybe Hadessa, maybe I'll give you another one too. So let's say you're praying for somebody, and they still don't believe, and the Bible says that all of us are dead, right? And dead people can't make themselves alive. And then all of a sudden, one day, that person you've been praying for believes. They didn't do it. That was God's power that made them alive. Mm-hmm. And so you see God make them alive. That's, how, that's another way to see God's power where none of us could choose to believe because we were dead, right? And so we have to be made alive. And so that's another way that we can see God's power. So pray for somebody and give it time. Mm-hmm. God will do his work and then they believe and you can see that's God's power too. Yeah, that's the Good question. Thank you for the question. And so last question will be uh, Jasmine. And this will be the final one for the night. So I do have three. Oh, three. <laughs> three for the night. get one. I've got a 12-parter. <laughs> uh, the first one was, how would you, like, explain to a Catholic that was hurt, like, by the church, and they kind of just don't believe that, like, church is necessary, So, but they don't, like, kind of identify as Catholic anymore because they were hurt, so they kind of just, like, drafted away altogether. Mm-hmm. Thank you for only answering one, asking one first. Yeah. <laughs> I would, you know, ultimately is that obviously Roman Catholicism has a different perspective of the church, right, than what, what we would look at, it, right? Because from, from Roman Catholic teaching, 
Ultimately, Christ isn't the head of the church as we believe. Scripture teaches that Christ is the head of this church, right? And so um, there's the emphasis on explain that person what church is about and take him to the scriptures. Say, this is what the Bible teaches about the church. And also, that I also talk to him is that don't let an experience at this church keep you from a relationship with Christ. Like you always want to get it back to that, right? About who Jesus is and the fact is that you belong to him, right? You belong to him. And get her to see that peace. Get her to see that, that he's called us to be part of a church for our good, right? It's, it's the grace of God that keeps us together through the church, through God's manifestation of his spirit that he's given to us. And so I try to get her to, to kind of see that point of it again. I don't know if this, you know, this person has left that church, but this person could ultimately be a believer. Like you said, that was hurt. Right, that was kind of since mistreated and, and needs that kind of that kind of help and redirection. Um, when I mean hurt, I mean not like she, they weren't hurt. I guess like uh, the priest was kind of like touching people, and oh. then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now she, and yeah. it's, that's awful, right? Yeah. It's horrible. I think what's helpful is to point out to them that that person was not representing God. Yeah. And God is infinitely angry at that person for what they did. Mm-hmm. And that God is a God of justice. And he mm-hmm. will make that person, he will hold that person to account. Like, like God, Christ, Holy Spirit are not signing off on what that person did. Mm-hmm. And that he sees. And that the righteous judge of all the earth will make this situation right. Um, that's the first thing I would emphasize. That there would, there's one day going to be vindication. That wasn't God's representative that, that did that to, to the person. Um, you know, it's kind of like years ago after 9-11 happened, I found it kind of interesting that Newsweek put out an article where they showed how through the Quran, Muslims waging a holy war, it's like all in their book. But like when Christians did the Crusades, it contradicted what's in our book, what's in the Bible. Newsweek thought it was a gotcha like, ah, see, look at these hypocritical Christians. And some of, us, some of us were like, thank you. You've made our point for us. The people who did those things, they don't represent us. They don't represent God. They were doing the exact opposite of what God said. So I would try to gently minister to the person and get that point across. Uh, and uh, again, being patient with all. Because in their experience, a religious leader walking up to them with this book got them to let their guard down so that he could violate them. So the person's going to assume that you're doing the same thing to them. Oh, you're coming to me with this book. You're going to get me to lower my guard, and then the same thing's going to happen again. So you've got to be patient, you know, knowing that there's that trauma um, and all that. But just be that righteous representative of God, and in the course of time, I think they'll see. It's just the long game. Yeah, and, and the Lord's put you in a specific position to minister to that person in the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. Though the church is good, the church will not save her. Christ will save her. So keep pointing her to Jesus. And then as she experiences the love of Christ and experiences the transformation of the Holy Spirit, then we can get her in church. You know, one of my my friends used to tell me uh, all the time, he he reminded me of this, and I think it was really good, good advice. And he said, you know, don't ever take your eyes off of Jesus because he will never fail you. I will hurt you intentionally or unintentionally. And you have to be ready and in a position where you can forgive. 
And so that's very important. Jesus will never fail you. All of us will fail because we're human. Even we're Christians, we're broken. We still sometimes give in to sin. And then the other little line is that Augustine, we're talking about uh, the Crusades and all these different things. Augustine had a one-liner. I don't know if you said it. But Augustine would say, never judge a philosophy by its abuse. And somebody else added, rather, judge it by the life of its founder. And so you look at Jesus always, the way he lived, how it was established. And I like the point that you made, that if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus always says, forgive those who persecute you and pray for those who persecute you. Whereas Islam would say, no, you only give forgiveness to those who deserve it. And it's so very much different, the life of Jesus. So point him to Jesus and he'll never let him down. Thank you. Question number two. Uh, the second one was, like, where is the line of, like, two believers and, like, l- like trying to correct them? Or the, the line of correcting and judging? These are professing believers who are not living according to what they profess? Yeah. Okay. Um, Obviously, you're always going to want to come with the word of God to them. Mm -hmm. If they're living in in, in impurity, you're going to show them what's pure. If they're living in drunkenness, you're going to call them to sobriety. Especially if they're calling themselves a brother or sister. Um, If they call themselves a Christian and they're not living according to the ways of Christ... Well, you need to you need to point them to the truth always. Mm-hmm. Judgment, feelings of judgment are going to be experienced by them because they're hearing truth, and truth is judging them. Not you judging them. The truth is judging them. It's a different thing to say to someone, "I think you're a sinner. You're going to hell." It's a different thing to say, "You are not living according to what the scriptures say." Because it, that one is a, is, a, is a pronouncement from yourself. The other one is a pronouncement from truth. Right? So we always want to go back to the word of God. When, to any person who calls themselves a believer. Because then when they, they hear the truth from the word of God. They're going to either be um, convicted. Or they're going to be prideful and dig in their heels. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Third question. Uh, the third one is, uh, can you guys do this again, but like give us ahead of time, like you're going to do this? <laughs> yes. Okay. You're not the first one to ask that. And, uh, we'll get it right eventually. We'll get it right eventually. But yeah, um, definitely. Because um, yeah, that way more people could have time to think up questions and stuff like that. And I'd like to invite our church. Yeah, that'd to be perfect. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Great. Because yeah, you just heard about it this morning. Yeah, my wife's like, my wife's like, Pastor Stephen invited you. What time? I was like, like twelve. And she's like, why? <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get better at that kind of stuff. I got, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. I I blame my secretary. It's, it's on our calendar. That's the thing. It's on our calendar, right? So <laughs> it's Rachel. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Rachel will handle it next time. I mean, yeah. Cool. All right, so who would like to close this in prayer? Carlos. I'll pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us this time together, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here safely, and thank you for allowing us to engage with these questions uh, that we could answer, Lord, according to your scriptures. I pray, Father, that anybody who heard them, Lord, would be encouraged, challenged, convicted, 
and they would ultimately see that everything that we do points back to you, Lord. So bless us as we go throughout the week, Lord. Bless everybody here. Remind them that you are their God and that uh, you sent Jesus to die for their sins and you rose him up on the third day to give him life. And if anybody doesn't know that, Lord, I pray that you would make it very, very much known to them, Lord, and that you would give their dead hearts a beating flesh, real life heart, Lord. So thank you so much, Father. We praise you for your goodness. Thank you that you've never left us without an answer, but that you are the revealer, Lord. You are the healer, and you are our God, and you are our Abba. We thank you so much, Lord, and we praise you, and ask that you would be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right.